from Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. For more information about this episode and our guests, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media pages. Today, most of the Podvocate board and two very special guests are talking about campus activism. This is not some new issue. In fact, one of our guests today was a campus activist in the late 1960s. But it seems like today's students are singled out for their perceived sensitivity. Campuses are made out to be enclaves of militant progressives upset about everything. In response, some in power have dismissed students' concerns outright or offered token changes to mollify students. We're going to discuss where these feelings on both sides of the dais come from and how activist students can marshal frustrations into a message that resonates with the school and community to effectuate meaningful change. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. Today's student activists are often criticized with being impatient, too quick, or too aggressive in their response to perceived societal wrongs. Have today's students activists lost sight of the long arc of history and failed to recognize incremental progress? Or are they aware of that long arc but see insufficient or no progress at all and are demanding nothing short of meaningful change? These are just some of the topics we're hoping to cover today, and we have some really exciting guests with us. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to introduce yourselves, Mary Beth, um, if you want to go first, and then we have B. Alvarez. Hello, everyone. I'm Mary Beth Tinker, and it's so good to be with all of you as we speak about one of my favorite subjects, students' rights. I was a plaintiff in a student's rights case Tinker versus Des Moines that was decided in 1969 at the Supreme Court. And I'm a retired nurse. I've had a background in public health and also working mostly with with young people, with children and teenagers. I was a trauma nurse. And uh, so I sort of put it all together through the years. And now I'm on a Tinker tour, which has been going on for about 10 years, traveling the country and speaking with students across the country and teachers and others about the rights of young people. Thank you for having me here. It is our honor, truly. And B. Wow, I think I should have went first. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> okay, so my name is B. Um, she, her, hers. I am a 3L at Loyola. I'm the vice president of the Student Bar Association. Um, a lot of my student activism actually started in high school um, with trying to um, implement some sort of like internal change. Um, Then in undergrad, I did spoken word as a form of um, activism for most of my time there. And then as a student now, I think I use my platforms as um, a student leader, a part of various organizations to try and implement um, changes, but also to support students. So you guys can probably um, understand why we invited the guests that we did to talk today. And um, when when I always joke about celebrity guests, but today I am kind of giddy because almost every law student in this country has studied Mary Beth Tinker's case. She is a celebrity. And B was in my section 1L year, so she's a celebrity in her own right, in my opinion. 
Um, so my first question is going to be directed at Mary Beth uh, with a lot of context up front. Um, student activists in the 1960s, as you well know, were concerned with the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, and women's rights primarily. And please correct me if I am missing something. Um, today's students are concerned about the forever wars, racial justice, women's rights, as well as climate change, threats to democracy, immigration, transgender rights, division and hatred, political polarization, and many more things on top of that. Today's student activists are often criticized as being overly sensitive, that they should just relax and not find every possible hill to die on. Do you think today's student activists are more sensitive than years past, or are they the product of being overwhelmed and inundated by perceived injustices that they witnessed or even experienced for long enough? Well, that word sensitive and being too sensitive is something that has been used through history against discriminated people, people that have been disrespected and not really left behind. Sometimes they wish they would have been left behind. I'm talking about African-Americans, Native Americans, women, immigrants, and yes, youth. And so you're always going to find all of those groups accused of being, oh, you're too sensitive. Why don't you just get over it? Why don't you just let it go? Because now and then youth activism is a human rights issue. It's an international human rights issue about a group that has been treated unfairly and left out of conversations about their the policies that affect your lives. And so really it's an issue of wanting to have a say over the policies that affect your lives and that you should have a say about those. And too often that has not been the case and it's not today again. So really the First Amendment is a tool that young people can use as people have used all through history to advocate for your own interests. And that's what this case is about and that's what so many student activists are speaking about today. And I love that B is doing it through spoken word and there's so much creativity and so much energy in student activism now. And it's really wonderful and heartening. Mary Beth, just a quick follow-up. Do you feel like that students now are rising to the occasion in a bigger way than they have in the past or almost that you've been waiting for this to happen or is it something that you've always seen and because of technology it's now being publicized more? There have always been young people speaking up and standing up and I, I like to Tell, I can tell, I can pick from so many stories all through history. I mean, I can talk about Levi Coffin, who was in, I think, Ohio in the 1800s, and he saw enslaved people going by, and he decided to speak up about that and stand up about it. I can talk about child laborers in Pennsylvania who were getting their fingers cut off and their hands cut off because of the greed of the companies that were exploiting these children. I could talk about, you know, African-American kids in Farmville, Virginia in 1951 who had a student strike led by Barbara Johns and, and their actions became one of five cases that were decided in the Brown uh, decision, which is considered the most important Supreme Court case in the history of the United States and it by the American Bar Association. And it of course had to do all with young people's rights. So 
I think young people have always been speaking up and standing up for their own interests. And some of the cases are so interesting. I mean, you can read about, you know, girls who were speaking up for the right to wear lipstick way back when and, and just all kinds of different interesting things. There, there's a whole slew of cases that have to do with having decent bathrooms in schools and some of those go. So there's just such a variety, but it's been going on the whole time. But we haven't learned about a lot of that because, as usual, history leaves young people's history out too often. And unfortunately, those bathroom issues are still present just in a different context. Now we're talking transgender bathroom. bathroom. That That is so true. Yeah. Well, thank you for that perspective. And I think that's important. And um, while I've heard about a lot of the things that you mentioned, I don't think about it very often. You're exactly right. It's just kind of forgotten history, right? So um, as much as we can talk about it, I think it's important. Um, So my next question is to be, what role should forums like um, our LUC Law Out Loud account on social media, what role should forums like that play in our community and discussions and how should schools react to that information? And if you want to explain a little bit what LUC Law Out Loud is, um, that would be good context for our listeners. Great. So LUC Law Out Loud is, um, <clears throat> it is an Instagram page that is run by an anonymous group of students. I personally don't know who runs the page. And um Essentially, folks are allowed to send a direct message to the Instagram account and voice a story of something, a microaggression that happened or something that was just blatantly racist um, or oppressive that happened in the classroom. And then LUC Out Loud will um, post that person's story. Um, Usually it's a copy and paste, I think, of what that person said um, so that they're directly quoted. And um, so in terms of the what role they play, I think that um, a lot of times students uh, experience being silenced by their institutions or they experience a lack of support. Um, or even if they're getting supported, it's just kind of still being brushed under the rug in some way. And I think forums like that for any university or any institution, um, it puts the school on the map and it puts other people on the map. And it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, you have one spot where you're getting all of these atrocious stories of things that have happened to people over the last few years. Or for some people, it happened all like in a semester or something, you know. And um, I think that those are important uh, because these schools should know what's happening and they have now an opportunity to see how messed up um, things are and how much they're lacking in terms of support in terms of sharing resources, in terms of um, implementing the right kinds of institutional change, or if they are implementing institutional change, then they're able to see the direction that they need to continue taking or that they what's next in their, in their agenda. Um, so I think when a school learns that something like that happens or they read a story, I think that there should be a couple of things that happen. One, they reach out to each other and they find out, did you know that this happened? and they have some sort of conversation to hold themselves or someone else accountable. And then also they reach out to, if, if the relationship is there, reach out to trusted students to find out like who was the professor that perpetuated that. Um, not necessarily put the student on blast, but we need to put the faculty or the staff member on blast um, because those folks are consistently protected. Um, so yeah, I hope that answers your question. 
That more than answers it. You guys are so wonderful. I honestly could talk to you all day, but I'm not going to hog you. I know my um, colleagues have some questions to ask as well. So I'm going to hand it over to Olivia, but thank you again. It's an honor. Thank you both so much for being here, uh, Mary Beth, as well as B. Alvarez. I appreciate the insights that you're about to provide um, and super excited to ask my question that is first going to go to B, kind of building off of what you were just talking about, right? So the schools are hearing all of these criticisms via things like the Instagram page, via, via our personal relationships, et cetera. Are they tuning students out and offering token responses? Um, and how is that affecting potentially the ways in which we are heard and how we can continue to respond? Um, our students, so our schools hearing what's happening, um, are they actually listening to students or are they tuning them out? Or are they giving token responses? Are those kind of the different parts of your question? I feel like I'm missing it. No, yeah, that's it. And take, you know, whatever direction feels appropriate. So I think that, first of all, are we talking about Loyola or are we talking about schools generally? Because I feel like the question could be different depending on the school. Um, Cause I have friends who are like at school in Oklahoma and some of the reactions that they're getting to student activism is literally on the opposite end of the spectrum compared to. Mm, mm. Give it to me, give it to me from a, a Loyola perspective. Uh, and then if you feel so led, yeah, build in whichever way. And then Mary Beth, I'm going to kind of ask you a similar question since you're not in the school setting, but seeing this from the outside. Um, so let's see. Um, I think that, the school is hearing what's happening in terms of whether or not they're really listening is another question. I think that there are people who are listening. And I think that there are some folks who are kind of somewhere in the middle where they have their like shades on and they're, they're kind of like on the defense. Like I hear what you're saying, but also this is what we're doing, you know? And so I think there's a little bit of that. I do believe that we do get token responses for certain situations, like the student at the interaction and, that was just sort of like a lot of nothing, I think. Um, and I understand FERPA and privacy law, whatever. Um, but also I think that the students were just kind of looking for some sort of acknowledgement that they didn't get for months. Um, so I think students get tuned out for certain things. And I do think that it takes being loud for a really long time to be heard. And I think that's what anything. I also think though that with Loyola specifically, there's such a like bureaucracy that happens internally. There's so much that the law school can't do without the greater university's permission. Um, like the school got a lot of blowback for graduation and there are people talking a mess to everyone, but there sometimes our hands are tied. So um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it depends on the issue. Um, there are definitely certain issues that um, there's just more work that needs to be done. Or, you know, we have a specific professor that um, there are some issues with. And I think that any conversation that has to do with that specific person is kind of one of those like giving token responses. There's not, nothing that we're getting that is, um, I think, substantive a lot of the time. Um, where it's like our hands are tied. So these are all the things that you need to do. And here are all of these processes that you didn't know about until right now that you need to do now. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the bureaucracy just because we've seen that time and time and again, particularly at Loyola and the law school saying our hands are tied. Um, and so Mary Beth, I'd love to hear your reaction just to what B said and kind of your own experience around giving these token answers. I, I mean, back in the 60s, we didn't have token answers really to give because it was new. Um, but now we're seeing kind of similar claims again and again, and we get 
in my view, uh, similar responses, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Those token responses are so common and it's part of the whole process of a group in power disrespecting a group with less power, I think. And that's what it comes down to a lot of times with students. And, but you could have allies. You're going to have some professors or others that are allies. I remember being at Loyola actually a few years ago, a couple of years ago, for your Children's Law Center. I saw you there. there. It's so amazing. I love that whole Children's Law Center. It's really great. Yeah, B, that's great. So, I mean, those people are extremely responsive, you know, to various issues. And I don't have experience with the whole Loyola group, but I think it's sort of part of the process. And I'm glad that you talked earlier, B, too, about the whole, you know, process of, of being an activist and activism and how it can go and all these, there's feelings involved with it. And, you know, there's a lot to it. And it's really good for your health, I've found, to speak up and take action about these things that affect your lives. It's good for your physical health, emotional health, social health, psychological, spiritual, all of it. As a nurse, we look at the whole package of health. And I found that you're not going to win a lot of the things right now that we speak up about, but it's still a good way of life and it's still good to try. And then others can keep building, you know, or maybe you next month or next year, we'll keep building on what has been done. So I really think of it as sort of, you know, a process that's good for, good for the people who do it. And also it's good for the society because when young people are, censored or suppressed in in your opinions in your your input it's not only bad for you it's you are cheated yes but the whole society is cheated of course from your wonderful qualities of creativity and energy and sense of fairness and all of those qualities that are special in youth I love that. There's so many nuggets of that that I love. First off, yeah, recognizing that it's a process, right? That like student activism is a process. It is a journey. It's not really a destination by any means. That there are things that kind of always happen or that we know are going to happen, that continue to happen, but it's all a part of the process for when we get to where we want to get to and still probably have room to get to other places after that. So I love that. I love that, that it's a process. Um and as well that the society is also um, misses our creativity and all of those things that make them healthy when they don't hear our voices. Like uh, y'all can't see this because we're on Zoom, but Radhika just put up a heart. Everyone is nodding and smiling. Um, that insight, Mary Beth, is beautiful. Olivia, it's so good to be with you. I love the energy. I love the, the conversation, you know, because it's really about sort of a, a deeper level in a way, you know, of, of what's involved. Yes, there are issues we speak up about, but then there, there's a whole, a whole kind of deep level about the whole thing, too. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm putting up my, putting up my hearts, too. <laughs> I love this. And speaking of process, Mary Beth, I'm curious, too. There is a point in the process where we want to get to some type of open dialogue. What might that look like? And B, I'm also going to push this question to you, too, especially since you've had experience with SBA and trying to create open dialogue. What might that look like? What are some of the barriers to that 
um, and how might we get to a place where open dialogue actually takes place? I'm so glad you said that word, Olivia, because dialogue is what we need to move towards. And there's way too much censorship instead of dialogue. And so I really believe there needs to be more. No matter what people are saying, um, there needs to be dialogue about it. But um, it can get very tense. And so that's why there has to be, you know, it's a skill. You're not born knowing how to communicate or how to deal with very tense situations. You know, so there's different ones that you can learn. Like um, there's one called Laura, L-A-R-A, listen. Affirm that you heard the person and that basically the idea is you don't think they're an idiot. So you affirm that you heard them and then you start responding and adding on last to what you're saying. But, you know, there's different techniques like that, but it is almost something that you have to kind of think ahead and and plan and and have certain people assigned sometimes to do certain, you know, jobs if it gets really, really tense. I've been at some college discussions, in fact, where it got tense, but it's good. In a way, it's good if it can be handled because otherwise when things are just all, you know, nice and sweetness and light, you know, you may not really get to the real issues. And so it's important. Yes, it's going to be uncomfortable. Even in the Tinker ruling, Abe Fortas wrote the ruling and he basically said that, yes, some things that we talk about are going to make us uncomfortable, but that's the price we have to be willing to pay in our democracy if we're going to move forward. We, we all know that so much right now in these mighty times when there are so many uncomfortable discussions that need to be had, you know, whether especially about racism, I think, which is at the heart of things right now and um, other issues as well. Yeah, absolutely. I just want to repeat that for folks who didn't catch it. Listen, affirm, respond and add. Uh, that's Laura. So if you're looking for ways to enhance your communication practices, adopt that one. But uh, I don't want to go on too long. B, I would love to hear what you have to say about creating spaces for open dialogue. Yeah. So I think that I think one of the biggest challenges that comes with having um, open dialogue with the institution is the uh, part of institutional memory. So what has already been covered by previous student activists? How much reinventing the wheel are we trying to do? And what work have, what work have people been pushing for? With whom? And, and has that worked or has it not? And do we have the right people in this conversation? I think one of the problems that happens, at least that I've seen with student activism in my own experience, is that we are having these um, we are having these conversations or we're having these reactions to these things, but we're not reacting to the right people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's great that there's this other, you know, these elements of folks who are listening or maybe semi listening, but they're not the folks who should be hearing our voice. Um, because sometimes we do need to get rid of the middleman and go right to the source, right? If I'm complaining about the hikes intuition, I'm not going to talk to Dean Gott, um, Dean Kaufman, he doesn't have control over that. We need to start figuring out how we're going to get the president of Loyola University involved in these conversations and the CEOs, whoever, chief officers or whatever the hell comes after that, who's making these decisions. You know what I'm saying? Like, those are the folks that need to be held accountable. They're the ones getting the biggest checks out of all of this. Um, so I think those are those are some of the issues that we're having with open dialogue is that the dialogue is actually not happening with the stakeholders who they need to be happening with. And the problem is, how do we find out who those people are? And who do we go to to get that information? And like, what trusted source is it, you know? 
um, without that person saying like, oh, but don't do it or like, don't bother, you know, like these folks who are like, I want to support you, but also like, don't muddy the waters, don't push back. Um, so because no, no one wants to hear that, like this other person needs to hear what I have to say. So um, I do think that there is some open dialogue happening here at Loyola. And I think I don't think it's been going very far. You know, I do think that at, we were we've been going in circles for a while. Um, and I'm not entirely sure how to get out of it. I also think that there's going to be a change in leadership. There needs to be, um, yeah, lots of conversations about um, what what happens next. Because a lot of the folks who have been a part of some of the more recent student activism, like this concerned students group that we do have, a lot of us are three L's who are leaving. And so depending on what our schedule is, we might not necessarily have the time to um, continue to partake in these conversations, but that's what the next generation of incoming students are for. I like to, that's that's so interesting. I like to ask all of you, and your, your part about finding out who makes the decisions is so interesting because like, I mean, students ask me from elementary kids to middle to high school to university, like, what should we do if there's something we really want to change? And I was like, well, yeah, number one, you know, find a few people to work on it with you if you can. And then you got to find out who's making the decision. If you want better school lunches, you got to figure out who decides about those school lunches. So it's kind of exactly what I said. But I want to ask you all, um, what are the issues you wish there would be more, you know, productive dialogue about? I'm sure B has a response and I'm going to give her a, a, a chance, but... I think um, our focus, it's shifted. I think previously it was um, more about um, sexism in the classroom. And I think it really has shifted to anti-racism. I think um, my big concern while I was here was the lack of, of faces of color I was seeing in my classrooms. And and how the education we were getting was geared purely towards white students, um, completely ignoring the feelings and the trauma that was being inflicted upon black students when you teach from that perspective. So I don't think that that problem was gonna be solved until we saw a critical mass of black students and students of color in our classrooms. Um, and so when you're looking at a law school, um, you have to think about the LSAT and pipelines and tuition and all those hurdles. So that's what my big concern was. And I don't know if B has anything to add or Olivia or Emmett to that. Yeah, I can definitely add something. Um, what comes to mind for me on top of everything that Radhika said is yeah, really getting into the nitty gritty of the educational system. Like our listeners can't see this, but be sitting in what looks like a Loyola classroom, et cetera. The walls behind her are completely white. Now, most folks wouldn't think anything of that, you know, schools, institutions have white walls. But when we really understand like how students learn, how young people learn, what they wanna see reflected, it's just minuscule things like that, that really can change the educational atmosphere and can be more inviting and reflective of black and brown students, right? Like let's actually change the fabric of how we educate. And I think that's exactly what was Radhika was saying. But I just wanted to give that concrete example of like, even at that level. I wish that there were more conversations about um, how do we access the funds to make sure that 
people are able to get the financial support that they need without graduating with a ton of debt. Um, and I, unfortunately with Loyola, once you get your financial aid package, that's it. There's no conversation. There's no ability to appeal, to talk about how you have your own financial needs or how your scores might say this, but you're exemplar, exemplary in all these other ways. Um, unless you like apply to scholarships that all these other folks are applying to. And so I wish that there were, there was more conversation about need-based aid and, um, how the school can just give that out. Like, can we have her grants like every year forever? Like, can people just get thrown thousands of dollars all the time just by the institution? So. That is such, that's such a great issue because it affects everyone so much. It's very practical, but it also involves so much of equity issues, racism, economic inequality, which is so extreme right now. And I mean, traveling around the country in every college, I think I've been to um, student debt is a, is a big, you know, issue. And of course it would be, I mean, some students aren't even, you know, they, then students being forced to go extra years because, and pay for it because, you know, maybe the classes, all these financial issues. So, yeah, I'm really glad that you raised it because it involves a lot of issues. Okay, I think we're going to throw it to Emmett now for your yeah. question. Thanks, Radhika. And, and you already said it earlier, uh, but Mary Beth is a genuine law school celebrity. I think that's safe to say. Um, and you're the first party in a Supreme Court case that I've ever, ever interviewed. So this is cool, <laughs> so cool for me. But not the last. Hopefully not the last, exactly. Um, so my question for you uh, is what's the most productive way to demonstrate uh, for students to demonstrate? Is it on campus or is it still safer to start off campus? That is a question that students ask all over the, the country. And they're probably asking that all over the world. And I mean, I'm asking that of myself all the time. What's the most effective thing for me to do, you know, with my life? We all have to grapple with that to make the changes. We're not going to accept the way things are right now, it's a very cruel way of organizing our society. It's really terrible for young people. I mean, who is most likely to live in poverty? Young people. You can just see right there, you know, how this society is organized in a very unfair way. So yeah, we're all grappling with what is the most what are the most effective ways, you know, to change to change that and to change the situation. But I mean, it's just something we each have to do. I think a lot of it, you know, there's, there's power in numbers. It's about power and there is power in numbers. So we always have to think about, you know, organizing, getting more people. I think the, the human story, storytelling is very powerful. And I'm hoping we're gonna hear some uh, spoken word here sometime. Oh. Um, and also, just from the heart, you know, things that, that happen from the heart. I mean, I could tell you about kids in, you know, eighth grade who, or even seventh grade who went to the county council because their school band program was cut and they bring their empty clarinet cases and get on the front page of the paper saying, we can't play the music in our hearts without our band program. You know, there's just so many creative things that students, students in Rhode Island, they got sick of all the tests, tests, tests all the time. So they dressed up like guinea pigs and rats and went off to the Rhode Island legislature to testify on that. Students in D.C., where I live, um, got within one vote of lowering the voting age to 16 last 
year. And of course, I testified in favor. But I mean, there's just so many things. I think something that, you know, make you makes you feel good, at least part of the time. Yes, it's work. But I was asking, so how did you feel, you know, when you went to the school board to to say that there should be a change in the curriculum? And they always say, oh, it was great. It was really great. I felt so good about it. So, you know, something that kind of makes you feel good and that you can join with other people and hopefully occasionally at, at least, you know, see some results, immediate results. Yeah, I like that, that it's not necessarily just like the most uh, instigating or, or thought-provoking demonstration that's most effective. It's the ones that sometimes make you feel good. It might uh, be music, maybe music. Uh, art is very powerful, writing, po poetry, um, theater. There's just so many ways, um, you know, that, that you can be you and, you know, contribute and, and make a difference. Yeah, I love that. Uh, this is a question for B. And Olivia, I think, brought up the prevalence of, of token responses and sort of this institutional forgetfulness. And I, I think it has a lot to do with public opinion on social media. So my question is, is how does social media factor into student activism? Do you think of it more as like an organizing tool, like a secondary tool, or is the reach of social media, should that be the primary focus? Because uh, it makes demonstrations more effective than in-person demonstrations. That's a really good question because I feel like there is power in um, like social media demonstrations as well as in-person demonstrations, right? Like what, how would it look if on one day all students decided they weren't gonna walk into the building, they weren't gonna go into their classes? How empty would the 1L classrooms look? There's each one is missing 90 plus or 90 students. Um, but then also, way you get the word out for things like that is social media and the way that you're able to learn about something else that's going on or even the type of organizing that another school is doing is through stories that are shared on social media. Um, and so I think that they both have um, really important roles to play. I think they're also just, um, you need to, you have to think about what your strategy is, um, how you want information to be shared, what information you want to be shared and when, because if you're trying to do a secret demonstration, let's say everyone decides they're not gonna to go to class, you don't want to be publicizing that on every page that you have as a student group. Um, as much as you wanna get the word out, the wrong people might reach, you know, might get the word and then you might get a token response um, that goes ahead of um, action. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that necessarily answers your question. I think it does. I think I think you basically said it's a balance. There's it doesn't have to be either or. They can work symbiotically. I love that again that like it's strategic, right? I think a lot of times student activists don't or aren't seen as strategic organizers that they're not thinking enough or that they just did this on the fly or they're not meeting in an, in an effort to try and discredit them. But in every student organizing setting I've been at, at Loyola and otherwise, and all the folks that Mary Beth talked about, they were strategic about how they wanted to show up. And again, I think that is something that is a narrative that's often missed when we talk about student activism. Yeah. And as law students, I think we understand better than anyone, right? The answer is always, it depends. It depends on what you're trying to accomplish. It depends on who's involved and it depends on what the setting is. 
I am so grateful to you all. I uh, Does anyone else have anything else to add? B or Mary Beth, do you guys have anything else to ask? Do you have any spoken word or anything, B? Uh... So there's this link that's online that I have to find it. Um, we had a meeting with our board of trustees where we were bringing up a bunch of student concerns. And I read, and you can bleep this out because I'm about to use a curse word. But um, no, it was called oppression. And then um, it was one of those, it like starts off with like middle finger to the white cis straight man. And then the entire audience yells with me, fuck oppression. Um, that was a really powerful moment for me. And I think a lot of the people in the room, mm -hmm. um, but also we hadn't had any previous conversations with the board of trustees prior to that day. So they were all so confused about all of these student demands, <laughs> that we had, right? So I think that's one of the things about student activism that I learned later on where they're like, what the hell is going on? Like there's this entire room of like, it's a lecture room that's like one of these, but like filled with students. Students are sitting on the pews or sitting on desks with each other. Like wow. over there, people don't have shoes on. They're like wearing whatever the fuck they want. Like it's just such an interesting place. Um, so, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to check it out. Yeah, I have to find it. If I find it, I'm going to look for it. And then if I find it, I'll have them send it to you, Mary Beth. Okay, uh, that sounds good. I just have to like play around with Google a little bit. Uh, I know it's somewhere, somewhere. It's so powerful. Yeah, I will say um, when organizing, that's again why I bring up the institutional memory. Find out who you're having conversations with and who they've already spoken to. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, well... There might be a 1% of the time where the person will want to give you what you're asking for or point you in the right direction, right? But you want to have that conversation first. I'm always like, give them a chance to say no, because then when we start turning up and we do everything that we're going to do, we gave them that opportunity. Mm -hmm. So I think that in terms of planning and in terms of student activism, make sure that you take that initial step to say like, all right, this is what we want. This is why we want it. Give them the opportunity to respond and then go from there. That Great. is so wise, B. And I'm I'm grateful for you not only sharing your experiences, but sharing advice because because I'm hoping people who want to listen to this are gonna want to get involved as well. So Mary Beth, I'm gonna ask you to close us out. Just any anything you wanna share, we would love to hear it. It was so great to be with all of you, Olivia, Emma, B, Radhika. It's just so so heartening to hear about your experiences and your your compassion and your commitment to being activists and, and to changing things. So keep it up. And if I can ever help, just let me know. I think you're all wonderful. Thank you. Thank you from us. And I can honestly say uh, we just had a conversation with a celebrity who has already changed our country and continues to do so and B who has already brought change in your community and I know will change the world just by existing. Thank you guys so much. This has been The Podvocate. Hi everyone, this is Matt Dorn. I want to share a few final words as this semester draws to a close, marking the end of my law school career and time at The Podvocate as well as what appears to be a glimmer of hope that people will come together again as the COVID-19 vaccine works its medical magic. At this precipitous moment where choices are being made about where we go from here, I'm reminded of James Baldwin, his example and his advice. It is easy to despair. It is easy to be disillusioned. But we're lawyers. We never accept the status quo. We fight against injustice. The task before you may look Sisyphean, but you've got to keep pushing that boulder up the hill. Hope is invented every day. Wherever people are, we have a chance. 
because although we can be cruel or indifferent, we are miracles. We can figure out how to be together, differently. Resist and fight while practicing radical kindness. And remember, wherever you protest, whatever you rage against, remember that you have the last word on who you are, and nobody else defines you. Be well and take care. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on this episode and our guests. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communication at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Olivia Ashe, Emmett Harrington, Leanne Jossend, and Lenny Reiner. Our editor-in-chief is me, Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.